Welcome to Emotional Sobriety. I feel so privileged tonight to have both Alan and Joe, uh, Joe C. from Rebellion Dogs here uh, with us. And uh, they're going to be getting into some Dr. Seuss, which may sound a little strange, but trust me, it uh, dovetails perfectly with what we do here in the program. Oh, the places emotional sobriety will go. That's so true, Joe. That's going to be the, the title of this show. Look, you know, what was it about two years ago? You and I were doing a workshop, I think, for the... Um, what was it for the for a group in Arizona? What's the yeah, name of that? The uh, Free Thinkers, uh, Free Thinkers. Living That's Sober right. Group. Yeah. That's right. And I remember the one workshop that you brought up and you said, hey, I think I have a great reference for emotional sobriety. I said, you said a Dr. Zeus book. And I go, really? And then you started to share some of the stuff. And my God, I've read that book probably at least a dozen times to the kids. But I looked at it from a whole different perspective, you know, when you shared with it. So tonight we're going to be looking at Dr. Zeus and emotional sobriety. It's all there, like being stuck and getting unstuck. Um, That's what it is, isn't it? That's exactly living consciously. What that's Yes. Realizing that no one's coming, paddling your own canoe, living life on life's terms, uh, realizing that no one's coming, accepting what is, uh, living a purposeful life. It's all in, you know, the simplest stories we tell our children. And Dr. Zeus was a master. He was, wasn't he? And you're right. See, it really captures the essence of emotional sobriety right it 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 really says that we can become the determining force in our own life and that movement towards that experience is part of that waking up and part of the waking up that we need to do if we're going to become emotionally sober i'm so excited about this show <laughs> are you ready do you want me to read right i'm ready for you let's let's do it patrick are you ready you got your uh, dr sears on that was a really good priming i'm stoked let's hear it okay so uh we're talking about our young hero uh going out in the world that's right you're looking up and down streets look them over with care about some you will say i don't choose to go there with your head full of brains and your shoes full of feet, you're too smart to go down any not-so-good street. And you may not find any you'll want to go down. In that case, of course, you'll head straight out of town. It's opener there. It's all wide open air. Out there, things can happen and frequently do to people as brainy and footsie as you. And when things start to happen, don't worry, don't stew, just go right along. You'll start happening too. Oh, the places you'll go, you'll be on your way, you'll be seeing great sights, you'll join high flyers, you'll soar to great heights. You won't lag behind because you have all the speed. You'll pass the whole gang and you'll soon take the lead. Wherever you fly, you'll be the best of the best. Wherever you go, you'll top all the rest, except when you don't, because sometimes you won't. I'm sorry to say so, but sadly it's true. The bang-ups and hang-ups can happen to you. 
You can get all hung up in a prickly perch and your gang will fly off. You'll be left in the lurch. Want to stop there? Yeah, we let's talk about the lurch. Unpack, let's unpack that for a while. I mean, look, I mean, God, doesn't it just captures the unpredictability of life, doesn't it? And it, it says that, my God, you know, it part of this experience, part of this human experience we're having is we're going to we're going to be disappointed. Things are going to happen that are going to be painful and that are going to be challenging to deal with. And and yet there's a way, right? There's a way to digest those experiences and to grow from them. And that that's what I think emotional sobriety is all about, Joe. It, it absolutely is. It is about, you know, being, you know, present, right? Yeah. It is right. about uh, knowing my limits, yeah. knowing that life is a balance of reason and structure but also chaos and disorder yep there it is so shitty things happen to good people all the time yep and sometimes the bad guys win that's right well listen you're capturing the paradox of life aren't you yeah you know when you say there's order and there's there's chaos i mean it's so true you know, the these life is filled with these paradoxes. And another way of thinking about emotional sobriety is that we learn how to deal with the paradox rather than object to it. Rather than get mad at the paradox, rather than get upset about it, is we learn, as you said, Joe, so well, is that to accept it and see what, what it means to us and what we could do to deal with that and integrate that into our consciousness and into our life. Or as the doctor says, you'll come down from the lurch with an unpleasant bump. And the chances are then you'll be in a slump. And yes. when you're in a slump, it's not much fun. Unslumping yourself is not easily done. You will come to a place where the streets are not marked. Some windows are lighted, but mostly they're dark. A place you could sprain both your elbow and chin do you dare to stay out? Do you dare to go in? How much can you lose? How much can you win? And if you go in, should you turn left or right or right and three quarters, or maybe not quite, or go around back and sneak in from behind? Simple, it's not. I'm afraid you'll find for a mind maker upper to make up their mind. <laughs> oh, I love that, man. I feel like I'm trying to get on slump, Joe. I, I and I've got a few bumps from this one, baby. I gotta tell you, man. But it, God, it's, it's so God. He captures it, doesn't he? He really captures life. Yeah. For years, I didn't think I could bear slumps and bumps. I thought I had to um, run from that uh, or use over that. And it's just all very new to me that like the work is about um, accepting. It was, it's so true though, isn't it? And look, one way we can define recovery is that we stay clean and sober when it would make more sense to get drunk or to get high. And I think emotional sobriety helps us, you know, sustain our recovery, right? It helps us stay committed to the process.
And that's the good news, man. That's the that's the excitement that I have about this thing. It it creates an an you know, I was gonna say an unshakable foundation, but that kind of gives a long impression that we're not gonna be shook because right. we are. It just creates a foundation that we can recover our balance from. And the, and to know that no matter how well we've been doing, more slumps are coming. Yeah, that's right. More slumps are coming. That's true. You know, they're really true. More slumps are coming. You'll remember from the book he talks about, I fear towards a most useless place. You'll find your way to the waiting place. For people just waiting, waiting for a train to go or a bus to come or a plane to go or the mail to come or the rain to go or a phone to ring or the snow to snow or waiting around for a yes or a no or waiting for their hair to grow. Everyone is just waiting, waiting for the fish to bite, for the uh, wind to fly a kite, waiting around for Friday night or waiting perhaps for Uncle Jake or a pot to boil or a better break or a string of pearls, or a pair of pants, or a wig with curls, or another chance, everyone is just waiting. No, that's not for you. Somehow you'll escape all that waiting and staying. You'll find the bright place where boom bands are playing. <laughs> I like that. Oh, that's uh, said so well, isn't it? I just love his writing. I just love it. It's just, it tickles my soul. And you don't always know what you're waiting for, but it's just important. It's like um, you're going moving through a desert sometimes, right? And you just got to stay the course. That's right. I liken it to the seasons of the year, right? Living in Canada where we have four very distinct seasons, right? You know, there is a time where you are waiting for the next thing to happen. Like the the leaves are getting crispy on the trees. And, you know, like I know because I've been through it before, they're going to fall off and the trees will be bare and it's going to be cold. And they, you know, all of the, you know, nasty little viruses will die in the, the cold. And, you know, and then we're waiting. We're waiting for the days to get longer. We're waiting for the heat to come back. We're waiting for, you know, people to start talking about, you know, summer patios and uh, going to the cottage again and all of that sort of stuff. But I don't want to live my life waiting. I, I want to embrace the moment right here, right now, no matter how much splendor there is or how much. Yep, or how challenging it is, right? Yeah. Yeah, I hear you, Joe. That's really the that's really the goal for us, isn't it? It's to try to be present to what is. Yeah. And to embrace, you know, and let go of these ideas that life has to be a certain way for us to be okay. Yeah. And it is so seductive to fall into that, you know, into that hazard, into that pitfall. But it's, I call it that the big lie, Joe, that this idea that life has to be a certain way, we have to be a certain way to be okay. It's the big lie. Such nonsense. Being, being fully alive in your own life. I don't know. I've been thinking about that of just, because um, I think, you know, I had it all turned around and that like happy and pleasure and that should have been the thing that I was seeking, or if I wasn't feeling that, that there was something amiss. 
when um that there's a narrowing that happens when you're focused entirely on that or that's what happened to me anyway and um i feel like to be present even in the moments that are extremely unhappy um which is something i'm that's a mountain i'm still trying to climb but like uh i think that's like that's my goal anyway this at this point in time well say a little more about that patrick how, how are you experiencing that well i can tell you about how i'm not succeeding at it um well okay i'll just give you an example today um i i want to be a writer i am a writer i try to write and sometimes i do but it's also an extremely uncomfortable process for me and it's very challenging and it puts me um it puts me right up against my perfectionism and right up against kind of like my uh, negative interior voice that's kind of trying mm-hmm. to discourage me from ever uh writing a sentence and so uh, today, for example, I actually, I diverted myself from the act of writing by uh, doing every chore that I could uh, that was not was not the act of writing, uh, cleaning that didn't need to be done, um, just about, yeah, uh, you know, I, I ate a meal extra beyond, you know, what I really needed to eat. And in the end, I probably did cumulatively 35 minutes or so of 40 minutes of actual writing. I'm very happy with those 40 minutes or I'm very, uh, I shouldn't say happy. I'm, um, they're a victory of, of sorts, but um, that is a, just an example of my wrestling with presence. Cause that's what writing is, is I, I feel like on its fundamental level is you're being present and you're kind of accessing your imagination um, and just being there and doing it. And uh, I luckily I've got some runway, so I've got some more, you know, some time in the next couple of days to, take get another bite at the apple but um yeah that's that's my struggle i guess currently um maybe it's your journey maybe the muse is found uh not with pen to paper but with hands in hot water in the sink washing the dishes maybe the idea comes to you in ways you don't expect it to and i think that waiting place is sometimes you're not ready to write. Maybe you need more thinking time. And to if I go for a bike ride or I go for a run uh, or, you know, I play my guitar, you know, who knows what is going to come to me at a time like that. And I, it's, it's easy to see it as avoidance or distraction and it it may be that it may only be that, but it might also be just changing your the way you're looking at things a little bit, changing what you're focusing on to let you know. Sometimes I there's ideas I'm so sure about that I'm right, and the problem with being wrong is you know what being wrong feels like for me. It feels like being right. I don't know I'm wrong. <laughs> like, it'd be great if I knew I'm not wrong. I'm going down the wrong road, right? But being wrong for me always feels like being right. And so it's it, to embrace the fact that maybe I'm not, I don't have everything I need here. I just need to not find it. Just get the fuck out of my way slow down and 
it'll come out of me. You know, sometimes that happens. Sometimes those are the times that the great stuff comes from. One thing yeah. I've been, but, oh, but, go right ahead. What Joe is saying though, I, I want you to hear that Patrick, because what he's saying is we have a tendency to be negative and to interpret the things we're doing as, as you know, resistance or as obstructionistic. And you know what you just said, Joe, it just may be part of the experience. Instead yeah. of separating it out and calling it a problem that you just may not be ready to write. And what what and there's something percolating inside of you and to have more trust in that percolation, right? That's taking place in that preparation that you're going through. It's almost like you're marinating yourself, right? <laughs> in, the, in some kind of a sauce to get you prepared to be that wonderful voice that you have inside of you, Patrick. Well, the thing is, it's happened before. I've got to tell myself that. I have finished things before and it got done. And I was, the last time it happened, the last time the magic, uh, the magic act happened, <laughs> I was fairly satisfied with it. So I need to, maybe if that's just a little candle, light, a little, little flame of warmth, I can keep well, nearby. That, and even to, to generalize that even more, right? Globalize that even more to say, look, just to have faith in yourself that you may not write when you think you should be, but that doesn't mean that you're not engaged in the process. See, I think that we've got to watch out that to put these kinds of expectations on the experiences we have, we may be missing the bigger picture. Everything is the creative process. There, see, the way Joe is doing that, it's so inclusive. You, got, you hear that, Patrick? You hear how inclusive he's being. And you know what? It helps. It it, it gives me some uh, insight into my shoulds. Yeah, and inherent in what I would just said that I I can, I can hear Tom in the room. <laughs> <laughs> I'm shitting all over myself. Yes, thank you, Tom. Good monster has just been taken off the desk, and he's being shaken in front of the thing. That Tom, that's what Tom would do. Yeah, and Alan knows what's coming now, but it dovetails nicely into this. Imagine you've just read paddling your own canoe, uh, but your arms are getting tired. Onward, up many, a frightening creek, though your arms may get sore and your sneakers may leak. <laughs> on and on you will hike, and I know you'll hike far and face up to your problems, whatever they are. You'll get mixed up, of course, as you already know, You'll get mixed up with many strange birds as you go. So be sure when you step, step with care and great tact. And remember that life is a great balancing act. Just never forget to be dexterous and deft and never mix up your right foot from your left. <laughs> and you will succeed. Yes, you will indeed. 98 and three quarters percent guaranteed. God, I love that. That is so good. The balancing act, right? He captures yep. it. That's all of it. Yeah. We're going to get messed up and we're going to get lost and we're going to have those dark nights of the soul, right? That's going to happen. But if we stay pressed up against our experience and continue to try to integrate what we're experiencing and, and understand the emotional wisdom that's growing in us from it, that's the heart of emotional sobriety.
You yeah, know, it's pain. being here, I mean, not being there. That's right. Hey, hey I like it. Joe's going to start writing a Dr. Zeus book. I hear it. I can hear it coming. <laughs> being here and not there is what we strive for. <laughs> it's so true, Joe. It's so true, man. I, that, you know, it's even more. I even hear more now that you're reading it this time than I heard the first time when you read it. You can see why people go to the same group every week to read the same book over and over again. Yeah, great, <laughs> great point. Right on, man. Right on. Because it means something a little different every time. Yeah, that's right. A different person is hearing it than they did last time they read page 86 or whatever it happens to be, right? How is this hitting you this time, Joe? This Dr. Zeus? Yeah. It's simpler than I think it is. Yeah. I get uh, stressed out and I get called on this more now. Like I just start spinning about having to fix things. Now, I'm assuming something's broken. <laughs> I'm assuming I'm not good enough. I'm assuming what I've done isn't good enough. I'm assuming this outcome isn't good enough. And is that true? Maybe it is, but maybe it's not. Again, I can be absolutely certain and dead wrong at the same time. I've done it many times before, and I'm going to do it again. So the best I can do is to know when I'm completely certain I can ask myself, okay, Joe, maybe you're right. What else could this mean? Are you guilty? Are you guilty of uh, having too high levels of certitude at times? That's not my uh, problem at the moment. <laughs> um, yeah, b both. I can be plagued with self-doubt and um, uh, you know, toxically confident. <laughs> that's good that's a new phrase joe i've never heard talk say more about that toxically confident well i'm uh just so the listeners know too i just made it up now <laughs> that's how ad living goes <laughs> oh i love it but what what it means to me is it, it is like we want our children to have faith in themselves to feel worthy to be confident yep uh, we encourage people new to the recovery process uh, to be positive, to be grateful, to think of what's good. But that can be taken to a toxic extreme where it's this sort of toxic positivity or toxic certainty or this uh, unwillingness to live life on life's terms wanting to control anything I can control is dead and I don't want a dead life. Yeah. Anything you could want to control is dead. Yeah. I mean, if it's a living thing, it's becoming, it's not in a state of constantness. It's in a state of change. Every relationship, uh, the world around us, the environment, our brains. Right on, Joe. That's right on. What? Well, how does that strike you, Patrick? It sounds like that didn't sit a, a good way for you. Or... No, no. I I want to clarify it. it. 
it's kind of profound. I mean, the way that it hit me, I mean, I think like, I just have a glimpse of myself, of course, but also other um, friends in the program I've had people I've known where after our lives have been out of control for so long and we finally get a taste of stability, those are kind of like rushing towards just kind of imposing these frameworks onto life rather than living it in a way that's, uh, I guess, like fully sensitive. (laughs) Um, And then we run into, you know, further nooks and crannies and, you know, um, encounter new, new types and bigger types of problems. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, emotional sobriety is just kind of like the deepest forest there is, you know, and, um, I, I, if I can at least just kind of keep that in mind as I proceed through this, you know, um, maybe I'm, I'd be heading in the general right direction. The thing Alan was talking about that I was doing a presentation on was about how to avoid uh, perfectionism. It was called sober enough. Yep, right. The idea of not trying to be perfect, not trying to do the ultimate, you know, whatever it is, 12-step path, eight-fold path, whatever one's recovery journey looks like. But, you know, th- there's only a one or a zero in a score for recovery. Uh, are you clean and sober in accordance with your bottom line? Yes or no? If you're a yes, you're tied for first place with everybody else. And if you're a no, you're only one step away from being tied for first place with everybody else. Right on. That's a great way to say it, Joe. Sober yeah. enough. Yeah. And perfectionism is the opposite of emotional sobriety. Like it isn't even emotional reality. Yeah. And isn't that what inebriety is? Like, uh, you know, not being sober, not being in reality. If I can be in reality, no matter how hard it feels, you know, I am emotionally sober. Yeah. I, I don't have to be happy to be emotionally sober. I don't have to be successful to be emotionally sober. Well, everybody needs to hear that, yeah. Joe. That's right. Because it's yeah. not, it, 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 and I hope people get that. It's not about being happy. And some would retort, right? Then what's the point? But as Herb Kagan told me, it's emotional freedom, right? And that's its own yeah. thing. That's the deep- point. It is emotional freedom. That's the point, right? It is. It's emotional freedom. It's being able to, be in this world and find a way to be in this world where you're okay, regardless of what's going on. Can I tell you just something that made me very sad that ties into this uh, the other day is uh, I have a friend who is not sober, relapse very often. And he told me yesterday via text, I took him to a meeting and he told me via text that he just can't, he he has this very volatile relationship with his mother and um, there's a lot of anger um, he's practically, I mean, he's like a, a, a few inches away from homelessness at any given moment, but like, he just can't, um, he feels like it's an either or like, he just can't be in this world unless he's loaded and, um, and, and, you know, it, it's around and around and it's been for years. It's been around and around with this person. And, um, I, uh, I want, I want that so badly for him to be able to exist in the world because, uh, that's what I wanted for me. And that's what I'm trying to 
work out for myself right now. Um, but it's nothing, this is not the thing that you can give somebody. Um, they, they, it's, it's something they give themselves. Right. Um, but uh, you can inspire people to look at this stuff though, Patrick. And I think that's what we're doing <clears throat> is we're trying to inspire people to say that, look, there is, there is another possibility here. I like to think of recovery as the discovery of these new possibilities. And that's, I think, emotional sobriety is is a treasure chest. <laughs> and it contains so many discoveries, so many jewels, so many gems, <clears throat> so much wealth and wisdom. Part of accepting life as it comes is also knowing that we have to start where we're at. Like when we get too wrapped up and this is when I get spinning in things in the past that I want to relitigate and wrongs that should be righted uh, or things about the future and the uncertainty of it. And I want to be sure I want to know how much money I'll have in my retirement and that I won't, uh, you know, die broke or I won't get so sick I can't afford to live and look after my responsibilities that's that's not life on earth that's devoid of reality i am now off the emotional sobriety uh boat because you know i'm demanding absolute answers that can't be given to uh a life on earth with people who are emotionally sober and being emotionally sober is just that awareness not not the answers just the awareness and and i want to be i want to be more aware in buddhism they call it the beginner's mind right like like it's my assumptions that are getting me down not yeah. you know it, like my knowledge my acumen right sometimes that can help sometimes it's a hindrance. Sometimes I need to let it go and see what else is there. So well said, Joe. So well said. Well, I mean, emotional sobriety just hit the zeitgeist of the moment. Before, you know, like like in the sort of mainstream media, there was this whole, what was the, the book called? Emotional maturity or emotional IQ. Oh, yeah, yeah, emotional IQ by uh... yeah, and and we, we we cycle around these things, and in this day and age, we've just gone through COVID. There, you know, like what we think is real is turned completely upside down. Uh, what we think is dependable, uh, like it used to be, you think that well, you know, I need some security. I'm going to be a letter carrier. Letters. You know that what's a letter? <laughs> Says a, a Generation Z person. <laughs> like a letter? What what's a letter? Yeah, I don't think they know where to put the stamp on those. <laughs> I've got both of your books in pretty constant rotation. Um, your daily reflections, your secular daily reflections, Joe, and then um, Alan's Twelve Essential Insights. What did the writing those mean for like deepening your understanding of these subjects? You well, want to take a shot at that first, Joe, and then I'll sure like. Like for Alan, it wasn't his first book. So he he kind of probably had a better sense of what the process would be than me. I'd written plenty of articles for magazines. I've done journalism for finance, for music, 
for um, wellness and addiction and recovery. I'd written songs, plenty of them, right? But I hadn't written a book. And I, I, I got called out on my uh, complaining about, you know, how can it be in the 21st century, there isn't a secular daily reflection book. Like I've been to, there's a place in Toronto, used to be called the world's biggest bookstore. Um, and I would complain about this for a few weeks and someone called me out on it. Well, Joe, mm -hmm. who do you think the person, t tell me about this person who would have written this book for you. What would they look like? What would they act like? What would their background be? What? And, and I could see what they were getting at. And I said, okay, I'm going to give it a try. And at 200 daily reflections, I thought I, I, I can never get to 365. And at 300, I wish there was 500 days in the year because I just had ideas. I, I broke it down, right? I said, okay, wh what I'm really trying to do is it's not, it, it's not, it, I, I'm not trying to create wisdom. I'm trying to share wisdom that I've gotten over the years. And what were the 10 best ideas I've heard in year one? the 10 best ideas I heard in year two and three and four and five. And I sort of thought about that. And I, I'd already been collecting all of these quotes and I didn't know why, but th this was it. And I had a more extensive library than I thought I did. And like, you know, I just went back to some, some gems and, you know, some of them were stoics and some of them were rock stars and some of them, were religious people because I don't think because someone believes in a supernatural being, they're not a free thinker. Uh, I know some atheists that are not free thinkers because they're very rigid in their viewpoint and not they're not open to having someone change their mind. Mm. So the process for me was one of, uh, you, you know, being willing to take on a task and go in a direction where I didn't have a map for it because no one had made one, but other people had done it before me. Other people had had uh, planted a shade tree under which they would never sit because they, you know, they died, right? Those who came before me had done this before, so I wasn't recreating anything. I just had to go out there and do it. And... Uh, whenever I got stuck, it was, it was about, um, you know, trying to be an expert and I'm not trying to be an expert. I'm trying to share what I've al already know, what I've already learned. And so I just needed to find that and, and get it out there. So I'll say this real quick, Patrick. And then as you know, I need to jump off because I've got another meeting here in a, in a couple of minutes. Um, you know, my experience is is that something was being channeled through me when I wrote read that wrote that book, because when I go back and read it, I don't recognize that some of the stuff I talked about. And I said, "Man, you know, it's pretty good." I mean, I, I I'm pretty. It's like I I'm amazed at some of the things that came out of that book. And at the time I was doing it, I didn't have that sense that this was coming together as well as it's come together. Now, when I look back, it's it's I'm very proud of that body of work that I produced. And it is, like Joe said, I think a synthesis of all of the work before that. 
which I'm really glad for. But I think it came together in a wonderful way that I I, I did, but I, I'm not so sure I'm completely responsible for it. It's like I was being inspired by something. And I think it's it's by this process, by the fellowship, by you, by people like Joe. And, you know, I, I think that that it's, you know, it's like it takes a lot of people to put together a space shuttle. And I think a lot of people influenced me in terms of the creation of that. And while my name's on it, I don't think that I think I could have many names on that book that and everyone name on there would be appropriate to put on that book like as a third, fourth and fifth and sixth and one hundredth co-author of the experience. So that's been my experience, Joe. Nothing new under the sun. Yeah, I'm not known for quoting the Bible, so I thought I'd get that in there. (laughs) (laughs) all right i gotta run you guys it's been a wonderful show take care still there yep do you say that again there's nothing new under the sun in that i don't need to create it i need to find it it's already in me sometimes i need to slow down not speed up another cup of coffee isn't what i need i need to chill the fuck out right just sort of relax into it a little bit and Sometimes it's what you were trying to do. I've got to get pen to paper. I got to get my hands on the keys and start composing, right? You know, I need a first draft and then, you know, I'll work at it from there. But yeah, like uh, I, 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 I don't have the way it always happens, right? You know, uh, it, it happens a number of ways. Sometimes when I'm avoiding something, my mind is opened up to something else. And some, like all of the quotations in my uh, book, you know, maybe one out of 10 of them are from, you know, uh, addiction recovery literature. You know, nine out of 10 of them are from me being distracted somewhere. But what a, what a beneficial, you know, uh, side trip that was when I was, you know, just goofing off. Well, that's, I mean, that particular thing, the wide spectrum of voices is, I think what's so good about its flavor is that like, it's, it's about recovery ostensibly, or I mean, not ostensibly, it's about recovery, but it folds in all these, you know, all these thinkers, to kind of create this singular effect. Yeah. Because, you know, like from Dr. Zeus to uh, Socrates, right? Like uh, to Einstein, to Sinead O'Connor, right? Yeah. You know, it's just, you know, we're all saying the same stuff, right? We're, like, like we're all, we've all got only two eyes couple of years right you know there's only so much of the world to take in like we can't go create a new experience we just need to tell people what we're seeing well uh as i was saying to alan or you know my response i suppose to what you guys were saying earlier about um the writing wrestling is just trying to be more of a uh, of a vessel for the creative spirit not uh, freaking out as much or going for that next cup of coffee. That's something I'm specifically guilty of. Drink a lot of coffee and uh, (laughs) to just try and listen more. Somewhere in your programming and conditioning, that's a solution. 
but that's your addict brain talking too, right? You know, like I need stimulation. Mm -hmm. Maybe, maybe not. When's the last time you did an episode of Rebellion Dogs? I, I just posted one with uh, Bill Shaberg. He wrote Writing the Big Book, The Creation of AA four years ago. So here we are four years later, right? And he's done how many presentations? He's talked to so many people about it. More has been revealed, right? Like, uh, uh, you know, he's been shown data he didn't find in his research, right? He's taken on new ways of looking at things that he didn't have when like 11 years of research, but still in these four years is probably he's gotten twice as much information as he had then. Right. Uh, just as a, for instance, Bill Wilson thought he had finished writing the big book before writing the steps. If you don't know about the order that chapters were written and you might fall into the simple idea that they were written chronologically that chapter one was written first then two then three but he wrote his story and uh, there is a solution in one sitting and then when he was told bill we need more we got this scheme that we're going to try to get a buck and we'll send them uh, uh you know uh, four or five chapters so then he wrote um more about alcoholism and we agnostics. And if you know the book Alcoholics Anonymous, the next step, the next uh, chapters we read are how it works. These are the steps we took, which are suggested as a program of recovery into action. This is how we work these steps that we've just talked about. But he hadn't invented them yet. He didn't write that. He wrote working with others. That was the next chapter he wrote. And he thought that was done. So he describes the problem that, you know, unlike Silkworth, who says once alcohol is in your body, you have this allergic like reaction where you are now compulsively geared towards, you know, uh, drinking to oblivion. He said, no, you are defenseless against the first drink without alcohol in you. Your untreated alcoholism will drink. Right. Because shit is going to happen. Uh, you know, you'll you'll get stuck. You'll be in the waiting place or whatever Dr. Zeus is talking about. And what are you going to do about that? You're, you're... So to him, the problem was you are defenseless against, uh, you know, the probability of drinking and that his solution was you need something providential. You need something bigger than yourself. You know, he saw it as a Abrahamic God, but, you know, you need something bigger than yourself to overcome that you, by yourself alone, trying to solve this problem, not going to happen. And that's what he wrote in those first four chapters, his own story. Uh, there is a solution more about alcoholism, which is stories of like the Jay Walker and about Jim, who was sober and mm -hmm. then just thought he'd go to a bar, have a glass of milk and a sandwich, getting ready for a sales call. And he thought a shot of whiskey and like, like just insane thinking. Right. But, but stuff he did sober. Right. So he's describing more of what he wrote about in, you know, there, there is a solution uh, describing the problem. And, uh, and when none of that works, 
as it didn't with him. He had the white light experience that I haven't had. But when he was in Akron, when the business deal had gone bad and he was in the hotel bar, that providential experience he had of the white light experience wasn't keeping him sober. He knew he had to talk to another alcoholic, started making phone calls on a payphone, right? And got in touch with Dr. Bob and Dr. Bob didn't get sober, but Bill Wilson stayed sober, right? Working with others when all else fails, working with another alcoholic. And he knew he was going to write something for families and maybe something to employers, but he thought he was done when he wrote that. And it was only later he came up with the steps idea in the 11th hour. So that's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds yeah. like a must listen episode. My intro yeah. to all of that uh, wasn't the book. It was the uh, TV movie starring James Woods as Bill W that I watched yeah. while I was in rehab, which is actually yeah. pretty good. I thought, yeah, it, it it was it it was really good. It it wasn't factually accurate because it's based on a lot of the myths that predate uh William Shaberg's uh you know research where he took a look at the stories that were told and written down, many of them by Bill Wilson. Like like he doesn't deny that Bill Wilson fabricates stories. A little bit of embellishment. Yeah, because he's trying to get people sober. He's not trying to be an archivist. He's not trying to be a historian. He's trying to help the next person get sober. Uh, The example Bill Shaberg uses is the Ebby Thatcher story, the original story about, you know, one alcoholic talking to another over his kitchen table. That's the way he tells the story. But Ebby Thatcher tells the story very different. It was wasn't even during the day. It was at night over dinner with other guests in the room, right? But uh, all of that extra stuff, there was a woman from upstairs who came down and then they went from dinner upstairs and they were talking about this and talking about that. And Bill Wilson takes all that out of the story because the story is about one alcoholic talking to another. So he just told it in a way that just, you know, it's a better story, right? It's like a historical fiction, right? It's based on real people uh, in a time that real things happened. But, you know, you got to be you got to know whether it helps move the story along. And there's all kinds of details that happen in real life, like divorces or children. Sometimes you write all of those things out of the story because they don't help move your story along. You've got to be true to your, your meaning, your purpose, your your objective. And and his objective, Bill Wilson's objective was to help people find recovery right like and and he was you know he went on his training he was training was selling stocks and companies people had never heard of that would do things that he had no certainty they would but you know maybe you know like like he 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 was a bit of a a bit of a snake oil salesman but but he he did what kept him sober was his his newfound meaning in life to help the next person he meets find recovery 
And even when he did all that work with the traditions, it was to help a fellowship of crazy ass motherfuckers who don't have boundaries and don't have, you know, uh, you know, uh, mental health to, to get that this bus full of bozos from one town to the other without killing themselves. Right. You know, like just here's some suggestions based on all the things that went wrong in early AA experience. Right. That um, because again, same, same goal, same purpose. He wanted, you know, someone else to find sobriety. Right. You know, and uh, so that's who Bill Wilson was. And he didn't sell a million books until he died. Right. We canonized them. We we turned his word into sacred text. He he didn't. He didn't go to big book meetings. We know what it was probably best for him that he didn't get to see all that. Helps keep him right sized, maybe. Uh one of the there's another documentary that you can buy off of like uh, Apple movies or whatever. It's called uh I think it's just called Bill W. Like it's a documentary made by two guys who aren't alcoholics. And yeah, I, I heard about this. It's my name is Bill W. I think is what it's called. Yeah, yeah, and um, it 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 had some never before seen uh, like letters he'd written. Like like what like what it taught me, a, a fairly knowledgeable person about AA history, was it dawned on me that. Bill Wilson created a fellowship that would benefit millions and he could never join it. Like by joining it means you can leave it, right? You and I have the autonomy to go, fuck you guys, I quit, right? And, you know, so what, right? You know, it's not like we pull our hand out of the water and this image of where our hand used to be exists. It, no one will notice we're gone, right? We can just quit tomorrow and no one will notice or care. But that wasn't true for him. He couldn't go to a meeting and complain about AA and how stupid it is. <laughs> yeah, that's a paradox, huh? <laughs> well, man, I, I'm so sold on that episode. Um, I'll make sure that I put a link for it in the show notes. And um I'm glad that we got to discuss this a little bit um, as a tag after um, all the places you'll go. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I I, think this will be uh, a good episode because it, it, it gets to simple truths. And sometimes it's just a bunch of white male privileged guys, you know, big sausage fest, right? But <laughs> right. If you get down to like the, the very basic child-like stuff, I think it 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 has a better chance of of landing with more people. I think for sure. And um, long term, you know, I would love to do um, a series on the traditions as we've discussed. And uh, I'd also I'd love to do some relationship stuff. You know, yeah. new, old, extinct, nascent yeah. relationships. I think yeah. that uh, there's a lot of emotional sobriety lessons within that. Yeah, I'm. Uh, I just reviewed a book by Joe Nowinski, who I've, he's been very prolific. He wrote the, uh, 12 step facilitation manual, which is the Minnesota model, right. Of using sort of the 12 step model, 
but with a facilitator, with a counselor in a residential treatment center, like getting them through steps zero to five, right? And then aftercare for the rest, right? And and the warm handoff to AA meetings in an AA community. He wrote the manual for the facilitators, not for the alcoholics, you know, who were doing that. And he he wrote a bunch of other books, uh, the science behind this, how it works and why the science behind the 12 steps. And he took a lot of heat for these things because of the skeptics who go, AA doesn't have any more success rate than spontaneous recovery, people who just quit on their own, right? You know, and, you know, like everybody who got sober in AA would have got sober anyway. You know, it wasn't AA, it was their decision to quit drinking, mm. right? And, and so there's plenty of critics of what he was writing about, but but he, he, nevertheless, he said, well, here's what the science says, right? You know, as, you know, clinically and as objectively as they can, comparing doing this to other things. Like, like let's face it, lifestyle medicine is dealing with people who need to lose weight and they wouldn't have to take a single pill if they just could, right? People yeah. have to stop smoking or they, they wouldn't have to take all the, have the, all this cancer treatment, right? People who, you know, if they don't stop drinking, right? They'd be fine. Lifestyle medicine is, you know, it's, it's a bonanza for big pharma because, you know, we have a death wish, right? We, we don't look after ourselves, right? Like, like self-knowledge isn't enough, right? You are an alcoholic and you can't drink. Thanks, Doc. Oh, I'm going to the bar and talk to my friends about this. <laughs> that'll, that'll be a $90 copay. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks so much for uh, for coming by, Joe. Until next time. Keep the cards and letters coming. All right, I will. Never missed an episode. I, I don't know how many other people can say that. I love everything you've done so far. Tinge your life, tinge your myth. Cultivate your narrative with whomever you.